0: tell you to your face, boy, your mama cougar. Shorty, serve me up. Now I feel like I'm at Hooters. Baby. I scoop, then I dip. I will be moving like a Uber. Fresh out the clink, cooking up Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart. Hey. Make maneuvers. Yeah. Yeah. Think I'm Martha Stewart. Happy Thursday, and welcome to Not Boring. That was, of course, Martha Stewart by Young Gravy. And I chose it because today we have a guest post by Ali Montag on... Of course, the one and only Martha Stewart. So I try to do a guest post about once a month. Maybe it's been every six weeks. And today we have the most prolific, not boring guest poster of all time, Ali Montag. Ali's written for us before on Kim and Kanye, JoJo Siwa, and Chip and Joanna Gaines. The point of the guest posts is to get a different perspective than I have or than I'm able to give, and. Allie is perfect as a counterbalance to me, because she understands tech and has worked at startups, but adds a Texas-sized dose of, whoa, slow down. There's life beyond tech in between the coasts. Kick back, relax, and enjoy some lasagna. With all the talk today about the creator economy, and certainly something that I've written about and talked about, Allie wanted to point out that Martha's been doing this for over five decades. So let's get to it. Martha Stewart's Reign of Relevancy. A few weeks ago, my mom handed me an envelope from Martha Stewart Living Magazine. It's on sale, she said. I thought you might want it. I opened the envelope. It held an offer for a one-year magazine subscription in print and online, discounted from $49.90 to $10. Tucked with the paper, Martha sent a few gifts, a pocket-sized calendar, a recipe for chocolate frosting, a sewing template for tight, uniform stitching, and a stain removal guide covering the removal of wax, gum, chocolate, vinaigrette, ballpoint ink, and felt-tip ink from Delicate Fabrics. I thought, is Martha Stewart still in business? Yes, she is. At 79 years old, Martha Stewart launched a CBD gummy brand. She published her 97th book. She debuted a new HGTV show. Her flagship magazine, Martha Stewart Living, owned by Meredith Corporation, Touted 12 million digital readers and 7 million print subscribers in 2020. Her audience is still buying what she's selling. Her brand, perhaps the most famous linear commerce business centered on a single individual, is the original blueprint for Substack writers and TikTok teens today. Media leads, Stuart says. I started writing books first, then a magazine, then television and radio, then product. Media leads and merchandise follows. You build up an interest, a curiosity in your readership and a desire for things, and the merchandise follows. But this is not an essay about the creator economy. You can read 15 great sub about the business of creators. This is not one of those. This is a look at a more delicate ingredient in the linear commerce recipe, relevancy. Martha Stewart has, over the course of a 50-year career, with mystically perfect timing, Refashioned herself from Wall Street stockbroker to Connecticut catering chef. From the U.S.'s first self-made woman billionaire to a yoga-teaching inmate in federal prison. From a scandal-tainted villain to renewed brand icon. And from the picture of propriety to Instagram's latest thirst trap. What explains the unending appeal of Martha Stewart? How is it that no matter what decade we're in, she still feels relevant? That's Stewart's greatest skill an uncanny ability to do the opposite of what's expected, just before everyone else does it. It's also a framework anyone can use. Let's dive in. Appetizers and Hors d'oeuvres. In 1982, Martha Stewart published her first book, Entertaining. She was 41 years old, the mother of a 17-year-old daughter, and in her sixth year of operating a catering company in Westport, Connecticut. Before catering, Stewart spent several years as a stockbroker at Maness, Williams, and Seidel on Wall Street. Stewart started the catering business in 1976 with a partner, Norma Collier, but the pair split in less than a year. I was happy doing parties for 10 or 12, Collier told New York Magazine in 1991. If it wasn't 1,000, it wasn't good enough for Martha. It was at one of these parties, hosted by Stewart's then-husband, Andy Stewart, a publishing executive, that Martha met Alan Merkin. The president of Crown Publishing. Merkin was, quote, so entranced by the catering, according to Martha, that he asked her to write a book on the spot. But it was soon Merkin opposite Martha's ambition. When the Crown staff added up what it would cost to post entertaining the lavish book that she proposed, they balked, according to New York Magazine. It was a 10 chapter, 300 plus page book, it was expensive. It included recipes for hors d'oeuvres like cherry tomatoes stuffed with sour cream and red caviar, but it also included sermons on the quote reason, type, and time to host a party. There were four pages on table dressings alone. If you're curious, a ruffled pillow sham is a charming table cover for breakfast. Nearly every page had big, glossy photography. Merkin wanted to cut costs. He suggested cutting the book in half. Martha said no. Crown suggested printing the book in black and white instead of color. Martha said no. Crown proposed printing 20,000 copies. Martha told them to double that. I didn't not expect it to be a hit. That was the funny thing, Martha said in 1991. I think that sort of bothered people. Lo and behold, it was a hit. It sold out immediately. In the decade that followed, Entertaining sold over 500,000 copies. But more importantly, with the book's success, Martha found herself at the helm of a newly minted media business. I became an expert overnight, she explains. That's what a book does. She kept going. Just a year after writing her first book, Martha published Martha Stewart's Quick Cook with 200 recipes in 1983, Martha Stewart's Hors d'oeuvres with 150 recipes in 1984, Martha Stewart's Pies and Tarts with 100 recipes in 1985, Weddings in 1987, The Wedding Planner in 1988, and Martha Stewart's Christmas in 1989. The list goes on. I was prolific, Martha says. I could write a book a year to great advantage. I kept writing and writing and writing, gradually becoming well-known." Like any good creator, she also diversified her business. In 1987, Stewart signed a five-year consulting agreement with Kmart, earning a million dollars a year to consult on new designs and promote products. She taught classes. Thirty-five people at a time would visit her home in Connecticut for $900 per person, coming to look and learn. In 1990, she gave 30 lectures for $10,000 each, according to New York Magazine. I used to do catering, Martha told David Letterman. Now I do consulting. Next came the magazine. In 1990, Martha Stewart and Time Publishing Ventures launched Martha Stewart Living as a quarterly magazine. Then in 1992, Martha Stewart Living TV launches a weekly half-hour syndicated show. The massive distribution of cable TV did what cable TV does. The flywheel became unstoppable. But why? Martha wasn't the only person writing books in the 1980s. She wasn't the only person making TV in the 1990s. What made her uniquely relevant? What did she see before anyone else? It's important to consider the context. Martha Stewart graduated college from Barnard in 1963. At that time, the labor force was changing. The civil rights movement, legislation promoting equal opportunity and employment, and the women's rights movement created an atmosphere that was hospitable to more women working outside the home, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor. Things were changing for women. In 1965, married and a mother, Martha was no longer interested in posing for swimsuit catalogs, as she had in the 1950s. It was a new era. She was interested in business. Stewart strode out the apartment door and went to work on Wall Street. I loved it, Stewart said of her years as a stockbroker. It was very aggressive, and the money you made was amazing. I was making about $135,000, which was a lot. That's $1.1 million today. Stewart was early to the professional class of women in 1965. But by 1970, things exploded. Between 1970 and 1980, the labor force participation rates of women in the 25 to 34 and 35 to 44 age groups increased by 20.5 percentage points and a 14.4 percentage points, respectively. No other labor force group has ever experienced an increase in participation rates of this magnitude in one decade, according to the BLS. It was a tectonic shift in the labor force, it was also a tectonic shift in American culture. Working women became mainstream, no longer fringe radicals burning bras. What did that mean? The economic implications of the 1980s became the cultural implications of the 1990s. Sex, marriage, dating, kids. Decades of draconian tradition, gone. The guardrails were off. The rules of the game were suddenly very unclear. It was a time when we were supposed to be newly empowered, writes the New York Times, Taffy, brodzer Ackner. We were 90s women. The battles had been fought. We owned property and voted. We worked and talked endlessly about things like balance. The women's magazines encouraged us to take initiative, to ask the guy out. We were on the pill. Colleges were giving out condoms, not just to the men, but to the women. There were so many mixed messages, and the women I knew were at war to maintain their independence, but also still traditional enough to think about the families they'd been engineered to want. In the late 1970s, after leaving Wall Street for the Connecticut countryside, Martha must have felt the ground shifting. In those years, while renovating her farmhouse, tilling the ground for vegetables, raising her daughter, growing her catering business, applying the same ferocity to her fruitcakes as she did to her bond trades, Martha's ambition never waned. But a question arose. In all this ambition, who was being left behind? What about the women who still had to pack school lunches? What about the women responsible for cooking Christmas dinner? What about Martha's neighbors, the other mothers at school? Was anyone paying attention to them? Didn't they have ambition too? The job of full-time professional homemaker was floundering, Martha said in an interview with Charlie Rose. We all wanted to escape it, to get out of the house, get that high-paying job and pay somebody else to do everything that we didn't think was really worthy of our attention. And all of a sudden I realized it was terribly worthy of our attention. Here's some context from Nora Ephron. She said, Lots of women didn't feel like entering into the workforce or even sharing the raising of children with their husbands, but they felt guilty about this, so they were compelled to elevate full-time parenthood to a sacrament. A sacrament, that passion, that need to prove value, to prove the worth of something underestimated by the broader market, is exactly what Martha spotted. She identified not just the trend, but the countertrend. Mark Penn, the author of Counter Trend Squared, defines the concept this way, For every trend, there is a countertrend. It's the human nature in the information age. Every move or desire in one direction seems to inspire a counter-movement by another group in the opposite direction. As information and choice proliferated, American culture began to no longer move in one direction at a time, but two. In the 1980s and 1990s, professional women were becoming an increasingly powerful, important demographic. But in equal and opposite measure, homemakers were important too. They had hopes, they had dreams, they had ambitions, and no one was paying attention. It was about filling a void, Stewart said. Every time I wrote a book, it was to fill a void that I and my friends had to have filled. When I wrote a book about hors d'oeuvres, it was because there wasn't a great book about hors d'oeuvres. How many categories, the hors d'oeuvres of 2021, are we overlooking today by following the trends, but not their counters? Unpacking counter-trends. We live in a world of diametrically opposed forces. The U.S. isn't just more conservative, it's more conservative and more liberal. The wedding industry is bigger than ever, and at the same time, more Americans than ever question the institution of marriage. One group seeks more technology, another wants to sit in the Amtrak quiet car, Penn writes. Some can't sit through a six-second commercial, others spend hours and hours been watching TV. Taking the inverse of existing trends can be fertile ground for finding underserved audiences. Put another way by Saria Zoot, the opposite of a good idea can be a good idea. For example, There are two great ways of welcoming people to a hotel, Azut writes. One of them is highly automated and impersonal. The other is highly elaborate and involves large degrees of obsequiousness. There are two ways to win an e-commerce. You can give people infinite choice, like Amazon, or you can reduce the burden of choice. But it's not as obvious as you may think. One of the best examples I see of counter-trend positioning today, following precisely in Martha Stewart's footsteps, is Simon Sarris, Sarris, a software engineer, is also a renaissance man. He makes fires. He bakes bread. He spends time quietly writing and reading about philosophy, brewing coffee, taking walks through the snow with his wife and child. He does not live in San Francisco. He does not wear Allbirds. He does not race to answer Slack notifications. Instead, he lives a quiet, calm life, one grounded in commitment and devotion. It's directly counter to the Travis Kalanick super pumped hustle grind, wind scale, growth act, trace comic club narrative men in tech had been swimming in, wittingly or unwittingly, for the last decade. What if you didn't have to blitz scale to be happy? Saris asks with every post. It's worth asking why we marvel at his photos. Simon's life is not that unique. Millions of Americans without Twitter accounts enjoy quiet mornings with their babies every day. They have done this in states like Wisconsin and Iowa and Texas for generations. Why is a photo by the fire so stirring? Because in a feed full of growth hacks and fundraise announcements, it's not more of the same that is compelling. It's the inverse. Therein lies Martha Stewart's greatest skill, to see both sides of the coin and flip between the two. Being written off as old and outdated? Get high with Snoop Dogg. Finding yourself the face of misguided anger after becoming the first self-made woman billionaire and falling from grace? The poncho and... Being told you're too frumpy? Post a thirst trap. For Martha, this strategy gave her the rarest value a brand can have, longevity. I've survived the rigors of times, of marriage, of childbearing, of building a business from scratch, Stewart said in a November interview. I've survived very nicely, and I think I make the most of it. What comes next? Today, the era of Martha is ending. Things are speeding up. The world is no longer moving in just two directions at a time. As linear media, like cable TV, magazines, and books, are replaced by exponential media, like TikTok, Twitter, and Reddit, trends aren't bifurcated. They're moving in every direction, all at once. Take this analysis of GameStop by Ben Thompson. There have been a thousand stories about what the GameStop saga has been about. A genuine belief in GameStop, a planned-out short squeeze, populist anger against Wall Street, Boredom and quarantine, greed, hedge fund pylons, you name it, there's an article arguing it. I suspect that most everyone is right, much as the proverbial blind men feeling an elephant are all accurate in their descriptions, even though they're completely different. What seems clear is that the elephant is the internet. No longer are there equal and opposite reactions to GameStop, two different lenses through which to understand the conflict. There are an unlimited number of lenses. Unlimited choice proliferated by the internet is why everyone has a story about what happened with GameStop and why they're all true, Thompson writes. The 2019 story was correct, but so is the summer 2020 story and the fall 2020 story and the January 2021 story. None of those stories, though, existed in isolation. They built on the stories that came before, duplicating and mutating them along the way. Think about the most powerful movements this year. GameStop, Bitcoin, Doge, Free Britney Spears, QAnon, all decentralized, all vastly open to interpretation, all offering an unlimited number of lenses. Will there be a time when audiences don't want to follow a celebrity just for their advice? Recipes from Martha Stewart or career plans from Sheryl Sandberg? A time when we ask not for explicit instructions, but for a treasure map? The Martha Stewart of tomorrow may not look like a single person, It may go even further than AI influencers like Lil Michaela. It may be a loose collective, a single idea with a million fragments, a trailhead with innumerable paths to wander. It will look less like a cookbook, and more like a choose-your-own-adventure novel. I often think of this quote by Walter Kern in Harper's Magazine in an essay on QAnon. The audience for internet narratives doesn't want to read. It wants to write. It doesn't want answers provided. It wants to search for them. It doesn't want to sit and be amused. It wants to be sent on a mission. It wants to do. That's all for today. Thanks so much to Allie Montag for writing this piece. If you enjoyed it, definitely follow her on Twitter at Allie underscore Montag and get more of her writing at newslettercrew.com slash newsletter. Have a great Thursday, enjoy your weekend, and I'll talk to you on Monday. Tell you to your face, boy, your mama cougar Shorty, serve me up, now I feel like I'm at Hooters I scoop, then I dip, I be moving like a Uber Fresh out the clink, cooking up Martha Stewart Martha Stewart, Martha Stewart Stewart. Make maneuvers, think I'm Martha Stewart